0: We're in the second section of the book of 1 Samuel. The first section, you may recall, about the first seven chapters. The main character is Samuel. Now in this middle section, one of our main characters is Saul. He is coming on the scene as the king of Israel. And we pick up our story here at 1 Samuel chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that you shall come to Gibeah, Elohim, and there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man." Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would use this word that you would use this word to light a fire in us of love for Christ, of service to you. This we ask, O Lord, in Christ's precious name. Amen. The Bible tells us many things, but one of the things that the Bible tells us is that we are to obey the Lord And we are to follow the Lord. But have you ever asked yourself, what happens if we don't? What happens if we have a period of time in which we don't obey the Lord? If if we don't follow the Lord with all of our hearts, what happens to us? Are we then lost? Does God turn His back on us? Is it up to us to maintain our relationship with God? Some have said that the way to a relationship with God is that you come to God by grace, but that you stay in a relationship with God by your works. That you have to do all that you can to stay in the good graces of the Lord. Our text this morning, through the person of Saul, perhaps the most unlikely of people in the Old Testament, teaches us That we not only come to the Lord by grace, but that even when we are rebellious, even when we fall down and are foolish, God is still mightily at work. That He does not let His people go. That He is building His kingdom. And so this morning I would like us to see three things as Saul comes to the kingship the first thing that we see behind the scenes is the work of the Lord. That the Lord is still at work, even though Saul is the one called to be king. But we also see in the midst of this work of the Lord, we see the weakness of men. We see why it is foolish to trust in men. Why it is in vain that we seek our own works as a ground of a relationship with God. Because men are weak. And then finally we see the sovereignty of God as He establishes His kingdom. That His work is to establish His will and His king and His kingdom for His glory. The work of the Lord, the weakness of men, and the sovereignty of God. Well, it has been a whirlwind of a story. I hope that you have used the last two weeks to kind of catch your breath. Because there has been a crisis in Israel. A war is coming. The Philistines are hostile once again. We've seen, even in our reading here this morning in chapter 10, that now there is a garrison of the Philistines in the middle of Israel, in Saul's hometown nonetheless. There is a crisis at hand. And because of this crisis, Israel has demanded a king. But behind that demand, there is an abandonment of God and a desire to be like all of the nations. And so we have met Saul, the young man who seems to be perfect for Israel's definition of a king. He is tall. He is handsome. He is Mr. Israel. Why would anyone want a king other than Saul? Samuel hosted Saul at a dinner, but Saul really doesn't understand what is going on. He's kind of at a loss, and I think this is one of the ways we see the character of Saul. He's a little bit slow on the uptick. And so here we see God making this very plain in chapter 10, what is happening. Can you imagine what is going through Saul's mind? I went out to find some donkeys. Some guy tells me I'm a king. Really? What am I going to tell pops? He's afraid I'm lost. Now he's the dad of the king. Now, let me ask you this question. What do you do when life's events begin to overwhelm you. Now, some of us have a greater tolerance than others, but we all have a point in time in which there seems to be so much coming at us that we don't know what to do, that it's overwhelming. Where do you find stability and peace? You see, that's the kind of whirlwind that Saul is in right now. Saul has been called to serve, but he's not ready to serve. He doesn't know what he's doing. And so God has called him through Samuel, but the key here is God also makes clear to Saul that he has called him. You see, it is difficult enough to do the things that are before us. But it is even harder if we're not certain that we're supposed to do it, right? If we don't think this is our task, if if it falls to us. So the very interesting thing here is that God begins not by equipping Saul for the kingship, but by assuring him that he has been called. You see, the main thing for Saul is to know that God has called him. And this begins with being set apart. We see this in chapter 10, verse 1. Samuel takes a flask of oil and he pours it on Saul's head. And he says, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? This anointing sets Saul apart for the task That is before Him. That's what an anointing is. You may know the Hebrew word for anointing. This is one of the few Hebrew words that are easy to recognize. It's the word we get Messiah from. The Messiah is the anointed one. The one who has been set apart for a task... And that is why the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the anointed one. He is set apart for the task that the Lord has given to him, to purchase for himself a people, to redeem them, to gather them to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, so that they might worship the Lord their God forever and ever. Saul is being set apart not to that task, but it is no less a setting apart. Samuel makes this very clear. This is God's work. This is not Samuel's choice. You and I know from the background that Samuel, if he had his word, would not even pick a king. Samuel's only doing this because God has put it in motion. And so... One of the other things that we understand about this anointing is not only that Saul is set apart, but it means that God's authority is over Saul. He serves rather than is served. Now, this will be a problem later because, again, I don't think Saul gets it. But this is what God is doing for Saul. He is assuring him that he is God's chosen king, and he is set apart for the task. And then Samuel begins to give specific signs to Saul. The Lord is giving signs of assurance to Saul that he has been called. Now, There are three signs here, and one of the things I want you to notice about them, not just in this context, but I want you to think about the context of all of the Bible. Have you ever looked and seen that when the Lord gives a sign, it is not your typical generic fortune cookie sign? You know what I mean by that, don't you? When you go and have Chinese and you break open the fortune cookie, and the fortune is something like, something will happen today that will disappoint you. Okay, like what? And then, that could be fulfilled in 40 different ways. The light takes too long to turn. Someone takes your parking space. Someone cuts you in line at the coffee shop. It's all fulfillment, right? That's not what God does. God wants you to know that when He gives a sign, He's giving a sign. He says, you'll meet two people. They're going to ask you specifically about the donkeys. You'll meet three other people. One of them's carrying goats, one of them's carrying bread, one of them's carrying wine. Now, this is so specific it cannot be anything other than the fulfillment of the sign. Now, just because God gives us these kinds of specific signs does not mean everyone takes them as truth. We have signs about the Lord Jesus Christ that are very particular. The exact city in which He will be born. The way in which He will die. The number of days He will remain in the grave. That He will rise again. All of these are specific signs. And you have to understand that people reject these signs because they reject God. I'm sure there was some atheistic agnostic Israelite walking around and saying, well, you know, lots of people carry around goats. And, you know, four out of six Israelites have bread on hand. So this is just all a big coincidence. This is the way people operate, with what vision the Lord gives them. People do this all the time. Oh, it's just a random coincidence that the earth is the exact distance from the sun so that it is not an ice cube or a fireball. It's just a coincidence that we have the exact hours of day and night and that the moon is in the exact position to affect the tides. This is all just a coincidence. The fact that there is exactly the right amount of nitrogen in the air so that we all don't explode when a match is lit. That's just a coincidence, right? But you see, people say that. They ignore the sign. They ignore what God is giving them very particularly and specifically. This is how God works. All of these signs are meant to assure Paul. Saul. Excuse me. After all, there is nothing that God does that is an accident. Now let me tell you this. The Lord does that for us also. He gives us very specific signs so that we can trust that Jesus is who He is. He gives us very specific instructions in His Word so that we can know that He is the God of truth. We can trust the God who assures His people. The next thing that happens is God will begin to equip Saul... For the task that's hand. Now, now, we've seen that Saul looks like he's up to the task. He's tall. Check. He's handsome. Check. But what we haven't seen is anything that shows that Saul actually is up for the task. He just looks the part. He is a shy country boy from a minor place in Israel. He's not from Jerusalem. He's not from Ramah. And he hasn't been expecting this to happen. He hasn't been trained to be the king. How will he do this? Well, the only way that Saul can do it is for God to equip him. And that's why the third sign is actually a promise. Samuel tells Saul that What will happen here is prophets will come down. The Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Samuel tells Saul that God will make such a provision that it will be obvious not only to you, but to others. Saul is to understand that this means, in verse 7, that God is with you. And it's with that knowledge that Saul is to act. Now, this should be an encouragement to us as well. Are you equipped for the tasks that God has given you? For some of you, you're sitting here and saying, how can I be ready to do things for God? I'm still in grade school. I just finished VBS. I can't even clean up my room properly yet. God will equip you. Others of you are saying on the opposite end, oh, I'm past my prime, Pastor. I don't have the health I once had. I can't really be useful for the kingdom because I'm too old for this. God will equip you for the work He's given you because those who are in the middle are saying, Pastor, I don't have a spare moment to myself. I can't remember my own name some days I'm so busy. How can I possibly be up to the task that God has given to me? And the answer is the same, that you don't need to be up to the task. God equips those He calls. He is the one who will see that the work is performed. I want you to notice something else, though, as well. What is to follow this equipping? What is the happen after Samuel meets these prophets and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. Then we see in verse 7, Now when these these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. The short version of this is, Saul has to obey the Word of God. It's not just the power of equipping. We are equipped so that we might obey. God gives us power, but that power is to be used in obedience to Him, not on our own desires. Now this is the great shame of the church at large. There is so much of the church at large that is so busy trying to accomplish their own tasks that they've forgotten about the main mission of the church. They don't declare the gospel of grace. They don't declare Jesus Christ died, resurrected, and ascended. No, instead they're worried about equality and social justice. They're worried about political appointments. (coughs) They're worried about what kinds of laws are passed. And the only thing that changes country to country is the content of those laws. But the idea is the same. It's all about the here and the now. It's all about man when the church is called to be otherworldly, to call people to Jesus Christ, to see that they are fulfilled and find their meaning in the purpose that God has called them to. You see, when God works, He really works. Now, we should imagine that there's probably no more unlikely prophet than Saul. You didn't look at Saul and say, I bet you he's going to prophesy today. No. As a matter of fact, the text tells us the exact opposite. After God's spirit rushes upon him, and after he prophesies, everyone around says, is that Saul? No, that can't be Saul. And so they say, is Saul among the prophets? Now, they're so taken aback by this. Saul is so unlikely a candidate. God has equipped so unlikely a person that it becomes a proverb. It's like the equivalent of when we say, will wonders never cease? In ancient Israel they say, is Saul among the prophets? I can't believe it. Right? That's, it becomes a proverb. That's how unlikely Saul is. And yet he's been equipped by God. And we should not be surprised by this. Because God is able to do what He wills. And God knows what He is doing. And so often, His will is to equip those who are unlikely and to use them. The second thing we see here in the midst of God at work is the weakness of men. Now think about how Saul must feel at this moment right now. His head has got to be spinning. He's been anointed. He's seen all these signs. He's been prophesying. And he's been given this great task by Samuel. Now, he doesn't feel up to it by any stretch of the imagination. Perhaps he even wishes it would just go away. Have you ever felt like that? Wanted to avoid responsibility? You know... I bet if I asked you, how would you like it if I made you President of the United States? There's at least some among us here, maybe many, that would say, that would be great. Let me tell you the agenda that I would pass. I got my whole list here. All of these things I could do to improve the country. But if the Marine helicopter landed on the front lawn, and someone came to actually make you President of the United States, that would be a pretty scary proposition, wouldn't it? I don't want to mess this up. I've got to send troops into harm's way. I've got to have people attacking me all day long. What am I going to do? No, no, I, you know what? I think I'm, I'm going to just go, uh, I'm going to go to the restroom for a little bit. I'm going to go hide out in there, right? That must be what's going through Saul's mind. He knows he's not up for the task. But there is also a direct task that is in front of Saul. And we already begin to see something about his character. Look with me at verse 5. And when you come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines, and there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets um, down from the high place with the harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. And the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. Verse 7, Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do. Now, we read that and we think, Okay, Saul, go back to your hometown where the Philistines are and do what you want. Do what your hand tells you to do. You want to go out and have a great barbecue? Go out and have a great barbecue. You want to go walk around the park? Go ahead, go walk around the park. That's actually not what this idiom means. This is a Hebrew idiom. We see it in another place in Judges chapter 9 where Israel is fighting their enemies. And it's described that they are to do to them as your hand finds to do. What that idiom means is Samuel telling Saul, Go back home. There's a Philistine garrison there. God has raised you up to be king. Why? To defeat the enemies of Israel. Go defeat the enemies of Israel. What does Saul do? Saul goes and finds the luggage rack and hides underneath. He takes a blanket, puts it over his head. Right? He's not up to the task. He hides. And this can happen to you and me at times. We do not seize the task that God has put before us because we are afraid. Because we still think it depends on us and our ability when the reality is it depends upon God and His power. Saul hasn't learned this yet. Saul is weak in this way. He would rather conceal what has happened. He goes up and he meets his uncle. And you can imagine, uncle says, Saul, where you been? What's going on? And then when the uncle finds out that he's spoken to Samuel, his interest is really piqued. Saul's not even, if I could put it this way, he's not even a good liar or hider. He mentions the donkeys... And then his trail away line where he's hoping he can sneak off is, oh yeah, and I talked to the most famous man in all of Israel, the prophet of God. Well, what do you think the uncle's going to say? Well, what did he say? He must have said something significant. Everything Samuel says is significant, right? And Saul has this opportunity and he looks at his uncle and he says, oh, he told me the donkeys were found. Yep, they got found, all right. Donkeys are found. Samuel, he's a helpful guy. He leaves all of this other matter of the kingdom, the text tells us, off. Saul is trying to run away from the calling that God has given to him. He's afraid, he hides. The interesting thing, though, is there are signs to be seen if you are looking. At this point in the text, everybody is in the dark except for Saul and Samuel and us, because we know the end. But there are signs there. Uncle must be at least a little bit suspicious, because even if Saul had rubbed out the anointing oil, do you know what anointing oil has a property of? It is highly perfumed. So uncle's looking at Saul and going, Saul, what's that smell? I don't know. We were working hard to find those donkeys. I don't know. Right? So there's something there. And also there's this whole business of Saul being with the prophets. It's not like God is letting Saul keep this a secret. Because it's God's will that will be done. Why is Saul trying so hard to hide? You see, he hides from the people later. And this is, I think, one of the funniest stories in the Old Testament. In verse 22, they go through this elaborate procedure to find the king, and then they say, where's the king? You know what it kind of reminds me of? Have you ever been to a place where they give away door prizes? And then they draw your name out of um, the door prize bowl, and they say, Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones. And when Mr. Jones doesn't answer, what do they do? They draw another one. And they come up with Mr. Smith. So that's what the Israelites are doing. Should we look for somebody else? And God says, no, no, no. Uh, He's out with the luggage. Go lift up that blanket. And can you just imagine? Look at this in your mind, how silly this would look. They push aside the bags and the blankets. And not only does Saul get up, He's like a foot and a half taller than everybody else as he stands up. It's not like he's hiding because he's afraid, because he's a little guy. He, we are told, is taller than everyone in Israel. Here's tall, dark, handsome Mr. Israel under a blanket. He's hiding. But the interesting thing is, he's trying to get lost, but God is finding. There's something very interesting going on in this chapter that may escape your first notice. (coughs) We see the word find in this chapter several times, but you have to understand that the word that is translated meet is the same word. So everywhere that Saul meets someone, they're finding him. Everywhere he goes and he meets another person, they're finding him. And then he is found over and over again. We see it in verse 2. In verse 3. In verse 7. And again in verse 16. God is over and over again showing us that he is finding. But there is another weakness. There is a weakness of persisting in foolishness and sin. And this is what Israel is doing as they are trying to be like the nations. The Lord had said that this attempt to get a king was a rejection of him. Samuel had told them how foolish it was, and you would think they might get the hint that this is a bad idea. Now, there is a movement in the world today that says, our real problem is knowledge and information. If we just have more education, everything will get fixed. If we just spend more money on schools, people will be good to one another. Life will be perfect. We just don't know what we need to know. The problem is, that doesn't account for human behavior. Take the Israelites here. They've been told over and over again, what a horrible, bad, sinful idea it is to want a king. And so Samuel comes, and they're ready to go. No hesitation at all. Show us the king. Come on. Samuel calls them to Mitzpah. Now that, in and of itself, should get them thinking. Do you remember the last time we were at Mitzpah? It was chapter 7. It was when there was revival, when Israel had repented and trusted the Lord, and they defeated the Philistines. Now what we might have expected Samuel to do here is to cater to the crowd. I'm so thankful you could all be with us here on this coronation evening. Right? But that's actually exactly the opposite of what Samuel does. What he does is, he gives them a speech that reminds Israel that they are continuing in sin. Look at verse 18. The first thing he says is, "...the Lord your God brought you up out of Israel, brought Israel up out of Egypt." and out of the hand of the Egyptians. He's reminding them what God has done. Now, this is not just a history lesson. It's a reminder that everything they have, they owe to the Lord. And it's also a reminder that they belong to the Lord. And then he begins to press the point in verse 19. He presses them with their rejection of God. But today, you have rejected your God. And the Hebrew is very emphatic. Verse 18, I, verse 19, but you, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. What they'd done made no sense at all. And now, he comes to the point of the therefore. Now, you have to understand the way Old Testament prophets worked. There's sort of a formula that they use. The Lord has done all this for you. And look at how you have rebelled. Therefore, here comes the judgment. Now, I have it in my mind's eye that as Samuel is doing this, he's already kind of the bull in the china shop. He's already kind of the uninvited guest to the coronation. And he sets this up. You could almost imagine people in the crowd wincing. What's he going to hit us with? Therefore, not the Therefore. And then he does something that I think would maybe bring them to their knees. He starts to call them out by tribe, by lot. Now what that means is God, through the selection of a lot, picks a tribe. We don't know exactly what the lot would be, but think of it like rolling a die. And if you roll a three, it's Benjamin. Except for they could have rolled that die 100,000 times and it would have come up three every time. Because that's how God's lots work. But do you remember the last time in Israel's history tribes were called out by Lot? It was when Achan had sinned and the Israelites had been defeated at Ai and they were judged for it and punished. So you can imagine, the Israelites are ready for the walloping that is coming. But what does happen instead is that Israel gets her king. you see that? Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by tribes. And he goes through, and Saul is chosen by Lot. Now, what is going on here? Why does Samuel ruin the vibe of this coronation day? I think... There is a kind of judgment going on here because Israel is going to get the king that they want that God knows is not what they need. But I think even more what we have to understand is that God is more concerned with truth and His word than He is with being nice. There is a whole modern sense in which people who say they believe in the God of the Bible are only concerned that God is nice. He's supposed to be non-committal, non-judgmental, non-commanding. He's just sort of floating ethereally there, and we can do whatever we want, whenever we want. He's like a super grandma and grandpa put together. You kids know what this is like, right? You go to grandma and grandpa's and you don't have to eat every vegetable off your plate, right? Grandma and grandpa will let the clothes sit on the ground for a little bit, right? That's their job. Grandma and grandpa's job is to be nice. They've already done all the hard work of raising their kids. They've graduated to being nice. But that's what people think God is supposed to be like. And this passage shows us that that is not who God is. If you believe in and worship a God who is perpetually nice, it is not the God of the Bible. God is not going to let you go that easily. He is too good. He is too holy. He is too kind and merciful. He will never let you go simply to be nice. God doesn't want you to be comfortable. He wants you to pay attention. He wants to get your attention, and He wants you to repent. That's what God wants. Finally, briefly, we see how God shows that He is in control through the sovereignty of God. Now, what God does here is He makes public what had been private up till this point. Samuel and Saul know all about what is going on, but God makes now His choice public to all of Israel. Think about this selection of lots. It's God's only way to make clear that His choice is the choice for king. Could you imagine what would happen otherwise? One tribe would stand up and say, our guy should be king. No, 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 not your guy. Our guy should be king, a second tribe would say. And then a third tribe would say, you both are crazy. My guy should be king. But what God does is, He makes clear that the only choice Is his choice. Because he's in control. Because his will is paramount. Because he really is the king. You see, God's people are so dependent upon him, they not only need him to choose the king, think about what the story tells us. They need God to tell them where the king is. They don't even know where to find the king. It's it's funny. Should we get somebody else? Should we draw another chit? Do we have hanging chads? What's going on here? You see, God's people wanted a king, and God has to choose and show them where the king is. And this should be something for you and I to think about. You see, we are fooling ourselves if we think we can operate outside of God. We need the Lord to tell us about ourselves, to tell us about the world, to tell us about reality. We need the Lord to be sovereign and in charge. We need Him to reveal this king. The last thing that we see is God establishing His kingdom. Now, up until this point... Israel thought they were in charge of the whole king thing. And, and we might agree with them. They got the kind of guy they wanted, right? They put together the job description. Tall, powerful, like all the nations. And Saul fits the bill of all of that job description. Actually, a little too well. But now what Samuel does is he reminds Israel that their king is not a sovereign. He's not even really a true king. He's more like a vice king. Look at verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. You see, unlike kings of the nations who were a law unto themselves, the king of Israel is under the law of the kingship. Maybe better translated, the law of the kingdom. This is the same phrase, almost exactly that we saw earlier when Samuel said to them, do you want to know what a king is going to be like? Let me tell you what the justice of the king is. What the way of the king is. Do you remember that phrase? Now it's not the way of the king or the justice of the king, it's the way of the kingdom. The justice of the kingdom. And I believe what Samuel does is he recites for them Deuteronomy 17, which is all of God's commands about what a king can and cannot do. You remember, God was not caught by surprise when they asked for a king. He had already written down laws and regulations for what the king could do because the king was subject to God. The king was subject to the broader kingdom that God was establishing. And so Samuel gives these rights and duties. Now he tells them it's the kingdom that has priority, not the king. The king has to live by God's law. And what we see is who's really in charge. Look at verse 26. Samuel sends them home. End of verse 25, beginning of verse 26. Samuel says to all the people, go home. Who goes home? King Saul says, Yes, sir. Going off to my house. This part Saul gets. He's not really in charge, God's in charge. Samuel's not in charge. Samuel's just speaking for God. You see, it is that kingdom that is critical. What matters is not our plans. What matters is not our king, our kingdom, but God's kingdom. The kingdom that He established through the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns over His people with grace and truth, who gathers His people together that they might worship Him and serve the Lord God. You see, it is the kingdom of God that is being established. Do not ever be confused and think that the nations are in charge or that they are in charge of history. It is God himself who establishes his kingdom through Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate king.